Hello from Houston. Welcome to the Highlights Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. Our goal is to learn, lead, network, and serve. And welcome back to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Femi, and I'm a transactional attorney here in Houston. And my name is Patrick. I'm an arbitration lawyer also here in Houston. And my name is Ellen. I'm an immigration law clerk, and I am currently in Cleveland, Ohio. <gasps> Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> so to, be, <laughs> to be clear, you're, you're just there on vacation, but you're working. You work here in Houston, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm just here on vacation. I went to law school here, so just visiting my law school friends. Oh, that's the connection. See, I, I'm missing all of these different bits. Uh, that makes sense. Um, well, so Ellen is joining us today because we wanted to do an episode where we talked about our first year in practice. All of us finished law school in May 2019 and took the bar that summer. And we're all about that point where we finished our year kind of the first year where we've been licensed here yeah more or less and um so so now we just want to recap uh you know swap war stories as it were and uh talk about what we did right what we did wrong and how we're going to keep going in our second years so uh you know once again thanks ellen for for stopping by the podcast no i'm excited to share some more stories for sure <laughs> i don't know if i did a lot right <laughs> <laughs> She's like, ah, can you picture it? It was December of 2019. I had I had five briefs to write at the same time. I don't know how they. We'll see. Um, You'll find out. Yeah, an immigration clerk is something that I have a very scant frame of reference for what that actually entails. Even though I feel like I've done some immigration pro bono work, like through law school, um, and have an idea of like what immigration court looks like. Um, but it's also It'll be a great perspective because Femi and I both work in big law firms in Houston, even though we do very different things. Um, right. As our intro explains, I do arbitration work and Femi is a transactional lawyer. Yeah. So, so, so right now, before we uh, dive into some, you know, more substantive questions, we just want to provide, I guess, a broader overview of what we, what, who we are rather, um, and uh, what that basically means. So I always come on the podcast and I say I'm a transactional attorney. And uh, if you've heard the John Furlow podcast, um, which, you know, that's the one that's right before this one, um, you'll you'll know that transactional work sort of boils down into working on contracts, negotiation, negotiating contracts, um, advising clients on their deals. And so I assist in that work um, on a day to day basis. Um, the, the work varies and we'll dive into that. But that's what I do um, as an attorney. And so Ellen, uh, if, if you could tell us what you do. Sure, so I work for uh, the Department of Justice right now. I got involved through the DOJ Honors Program, which um, if anyone is interested in hearing this podcast and interested in that program and wondering what about it or what do you do, hopefully there'll be some sort of contact information so you can reach out to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than happy to share my experience about that. Uh, and I work for the subcomponent, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, which is in charge of handling immigration adjudication. Obviously, we do defensive immigration rather than 
when people, you know, apply through the United States Citizen and Immigration Services. So kind of two separate agencies, just to keep in mind. Um, and I work for the court. So just like any other clerk of a court, you know, we're a neutral arbitrator and there are two sides, the Department of Homeland Security, and then we call them the respondent. Um, and then sometimes they're represented and sometimes they're pro se. And, you know, we basically decide, you know, hear the case and decide whether or not we think that you have any form of relief. Well, first we decide whether or not you're removable from the United States and then whether there's some form of relief from removal, such as asylum or cancellation of removal um, or adjustment of status. So that's kind of generally what I do. Yes. So for my my perspective as, as an arbitration lawyer in Houston, um, honestly, it's a lot of disputes generally in international arbitration, it's either a dispute between two companies or between a company and a state. And so I've had the opportunity to see what a lot of these disputes look like um, at their outset. I still haven't been able to see one kind of go from from start to finish, but kind of seeing what what contracts or what treaties can apply and what claims can be made. Um, that's been a lot of the exposure I've had, as well as some domestic litigation proximate to arbitration um, and whether that case should or should not have been an arbitration is kind of how it could end up in in my group's sphere as well. Um, and so a lot of kind of litigation just sort of in a, in a different setting. Awesome. Well, uh, I think this is going to be a pretty good episode just because we all have such varied first years and um, varied practice areas. So people listening in, um, if if you're in your first year or if you're out or maybe you're a law student, um, hopefully you know, we're going to say something that, that sort of lines up with uh, something that you're looking for. So uh, we should yeah. dive in. Uh, Patrick, what's the first question for us? Yeah. Um, so the first question that we have here, that's what the transition from law school to practicing was like. Um, and I can start off by answering this one. So as far as the transition, I think it was, honestly, for me, I think it was relatively smooth of a transition. I think the timing of taking the bar in summer to kind of starting at the beginning of what turns out to be a stub year before the billable year starts and before um, you... Oh, Pat, can you explain what a stub year is? <laughs> yeah. I don't know that term. Of course. So the stub year is sort of what happens when you start as an attorney before kind of off from when the billable year starts. So we started, I think end of September and the billable year didn't start until December 1st, I think at our firm. And so we have that period from, I guess those two months of October and November where we don't really have to, we got a chance to sort of settle in and ramp up and not really worry too much about what we're billing. Um, which I think is kind of a nice way to sort of transition in. And also in addition to the fact that you start end of September and you don't even know if you've passed the bar. And I think for anyone who's taken the bar, there's always this underlying uncertainty. And so to be able to start and sort of settle in and then get bar results and then still have a little more time to sort of transition before worrying about what you're billing, um, I think was very made for a smoother transition than I'd really thought about. I, I didn't even realize those really different considerations, I think, on the eve of starting. I think it's been relatively smooth there have been some bumps along the road but i think that's inevitable and, and part of the learning experience okay i have a question for both of you did you have because i think this is what you were talking about i also started before i passed the bar and i think uh we have two chances to pass the bar and then if you don't you 
basically get axed because um, we're in a provisional time before we pass the bar. Was that true? Did y'all have like a time limit of, because I felt like when the bar results were coming out, I was like, I have to decide really soon if I want to take it again, if I fail. I mean, thankfully I passed, but, you know, I feel like that was a concern. So did both of you, was that a concern for anyone or, you know, where did you get multiple chances? So I, I think for Patrick and I, it's, it's similar just because we're in the same industry. Uh, most big law firms will allow you to take it twice. Um, they don't tell you this, of course, they, they sort of, they, they do expect you to, to pass the first time, which is, uh, I'd say a little unfair. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of uncertainty here, but um, mm -hmm. it, it is basic practice that um, if, if somebody does not pass on their first try, they do get a second chance. And um, firms are actually fairly generous, um, at, at least big law firms, um, they'll provide them time off and, and they'll still yeah. get paid. And um, so that, oh, that's really nice. Yeah. And, and so that, that is the case, at least from, from what I have seen. Um, yeah, I, th I think I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think especially on, as you got closer to the bar and kind of the anxiety or the time of results and the anxiety peaks, it's, I feel like most of the attorneys I talked with w would even say, not even just like within the firm, but in the broader community, we're like, look, even if you don't pass um, the first time, like you're going to be fine. You're going to still have your job. Um, there was never really a hard rule that I heard one way or the other. It was just sort of do your best and things will work themselves out. We're, work themselves out that's good yeah we had um i'll i'll explain our bar situation and then kind of talk about my transition but um essentially our being passing the bar was tied to us uh raising our pay scale so i work for the federal government and there's a ton of different pay scales you can be on in the federal government in case that wasn't in case that wasn't known to anybody um that i was on the general schedule pay scale and okay. we, when we passed the bar, we got raised from a GS-11 to a GS-12. Um, fun fact for those people practicing in Houston is the federal government, um, there is the base pay, but then there's locality pay. And basically because of NASA, Houston federal government attorneys also get um, uh, the highest locality pay huh. of anyone in the United <laughs> States because of NASA. So. <laughs> Wait a minute. That sounds pretty great. I know. <laughs> so thank all those engineers. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that was, it was, you know, <laughs> it was tied to, to a pay raise for us, which was, uh, nice, um, also to pass the first time, which was really helpful. But my transition from law school to practice was a bit, I would definitely say it was a bit rocky. We, so overall, the structure of the program that I'm in isn't supposed to be like what happened to me. You're supposed to kind of have mentors and attorneys who are you know senior to you who are teaching you what to do but the court that i work at just opened in 2019 and they didn't have any senior attorneys who were working there the one senior attorney they did have she was just finishing her two years because it's supposed to be a two-year program usually and so she was leaving and she wasn't going to stay as a permanent attorney there and then also our um, boss the head of the office ran two offices, one in Houston and then one in Georgia. And so, you know, he was traveling back and forth a lot as well. Uh, so I think it made it a bit more uncertain. We didn't necessarily have a ton of people to guide us or really tell us what to do. We were kind of just given, you know, here's two weeks of training um, that's happening at the same time as you're being given assignments. And, 
it's immigration law and it's totally different. It's like, I have no idea what to do. Um, so it was definitely kind of being back in as a one L in law school when you're like, what's happening. I don't understand any of these terms. Um, you know, uh, so it, it was really rough, but I think also, you know, there's a huge learning curve in immigration law, but it kind of hasn't changed since the eighties. So once you get up that curve, then it's pretty, things come out like it's a lot faster and more consistent and you know what you're doing a lot yeah. more. So yeah. So it's kind of like that. <laughs> oh, it hasn't changed since the eighties. That that's actually a statement simply because of, I guess the past four years, it feels like things have changed a bit, but um, for the most part, the part that you take care of is fairly stagnant as it were. Yeah. So that makes yeah. sense. Um, I guess I'll talk about my experience. So um, people who operate in the transactional space, I think they can they can agree that uh, it's a very 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 steep learning curve. Um, and even if you've you clerked during the two L summer, I mean, there's just so much that you weren't exposed to. And and if you did get exposure, I mean, not even a full year. It maybe a week after finishing your summer, you you probably forgot all the stuff uh, all the stuff that you learned. Um, and, and it's just because, you know, it it takes a while to pick up the process as opposed to having three years to learn about essentially only litigation in law school, which which is what happened. Mm -hmm. So I would say that my transition was very, very steep and difficult. Um, especially like the first four to five months, just trying to pick up what was going on, what was expected of me. Uh, I, I can definitely remember just being overwhelmed by um, the time commitment and the the breadth of um, tasks that that I was required to do. You know, I just remember being like, wow, I have to understand not only the, the, the aspect of the law here, but also how to like use the different formats and PowerPoint and this and that. I mean, like just so varied um, in, in the tests that, that came day, day by day. And of course, now I'm, now I'm at a point where I can sort of take a deep breath and execute without being shaken up. But I definitely remember a couple of days where I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I feel like I'm drowning. There's just so much, so many new things that are going on. So, um, Hey, if, if, if you're in the transactional space and you felt like that, you are seen. I mean, that's really cool. Uh, just to, I have one more comment, but just to what you're talking about, the hours, uh, just another plug for (laughs) my current organization is that if you, if you work for, this is not true of all, of the government agencies, obviously, within the federal government or even all the ones in Houston, but um, the Executive Office of Immigration Review and being a law clerk, you know, we have very set hours that we work. So you're not being overwhelmed. You're not asked to work until 3 a.m. or, you know, Mm. 11 hour days. You work from 7 to 4.30 and that's when you work, you know, and you get a lunch. So. Wait, wait, no, let, let me clarify. You work from seven to four, go home and then take a break and work more. No, right? no, 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 no. I just, I go home <laughs> and watch TV and play with my dog. Well, I'm curious, is, do you ever find then that <laughs> this might be a weird mentality? Is it then hard to get the work that you need to get done in those time frames, Or what happens if you don't finish 
what you need to finish by by four four thirty. No, I um, think that I mean at least at my current position, it's pretty manageable. The work, you know, it's it's all about just planning your day well. I think again, like I said, that there's the really steep learning curve. So in the beginning. I think I did stay late a couple days, but now, you know, it's, it's just writing opinions and you're writing the same, you know, it's like you kind of get into a rhythm and you know whether or not it's going to be a grant or a denial and you can write it, you can write an opinion pretty quickly once you've written, you know, 140 of them. So. (laughs) Right, right, right. It it, it becomes fairly reflexive at this point. So I, I think part of what plays into this transition to working from law school. Um, and I know maybe now we don't think about it too much, but all three of us, I think, took time to work before law school. And I will always be a proponent of of taking at least a year or two to do that and just kind of gain perspective. For me, a lot of it may have just been sort of, um, and maybe for anyone, implicit is just like having this responsibility for like a year or more or less but just like this kind of full-time responsibility and, and just yeah. kind of figuring out the ins and outs of what that would look like. Um, in addition to just kind of solidifying the interest in going to law school and wanting to be a lawyer. For me personally, it was helpful, I think. Um, oh, yeah. I absolutely advocate for taking a year off. I think it's just, you know, it's like I was leaving a whole kind of career behind in a way. And so I was, you know, I'm going to dedicate myself to law school this is what I'm going to do. I gave up all these other opportunities for this opportunity and I'm putting myself in more debt because mm-hmm. of it, you know? So. <laughs> Say yeah. it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that that definitely helps everyone. And I think some people just, just have it figured out after undergrad that they, that's what they want to do. And I, I was not one of those people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I applaud those people. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Um, so the next question just gave a better handle of what our different um, days to day to days can look like. What sort of general tasks have you handled during your first year? And let's start Femi with you this time. Okay. Um, so as as I have uh, sort of previewed, um, being a transactional attorney like opens you up to a lot of different tasks. Um, so my day to day depends on the sort of deal that I'm on. So if I'm on a capital markets deal, um, and just for a little bit of background, capital markets basically entails, um, allowing a company or, or some sort of organization to gain access to the capital markets, which are, you know, securities, notes, um, bonds. Um, and they do this by coordinating with banks and trying to get these notes, stocks, what have you sold. Um, so there's also a component in which they are um, basically selling these, selling these uh, securities to like potential stockholders or, or to, to to potential buyers. So in that space, um, what what I'm doing as a first year attorney is essentially helping them with compliance, there's a huge compliance component. Um, and there's this aspect of strict liability that comes into play um, underneath the SEC rules. So a big a big thing that I do as a first year attorney is essentially make sure that the things that the company is stating in their public filings is backed up by verifiable data. So that means that I am literally going through their documents 
<laughs> and saying, this is a number. Where Where's the proof for this number? So I will underline it or I will circle it and then we'll send it to the company and the company has to provide that proof. And sometimes you send it back and they'd like, we'll take the, they'll, they'll take that number out or try to augment the sentence because <laughs> they're like, well, you know, it was, it was like, an, you know, we, we sort of figured and it's like, no, like you, you will get sued if, if you do that. So, so that's kind of cool. Um, but that's something that's very, very specific to capital markets. And, and we call that uh, ticking and tying or circling. Um, now, if you're doing, um, let's say, M&A, M&A has a heavy diligence component. So M&A is, you know, I, I think M&A is sort of thrown around a lot, but essentially what people are doing are buying and selling companies or buying and selling assets. Well, let's say you were going to buy a car, which is something that, you know, most people have done. They, they, can, they can understand that. If you're going to buy a car and you've never purchased that specific car um, and, and you're trying to be a very diligent buyer, well, you're going to have a laundry list of questions. So who was the previous owner? What did they do with the car? Did they lease it? Did they actually buy it outright? Did they finish paying it off? Did it have any accidents? I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just showing like the, the intense sort of gritty. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm showing you the, the intense gritty analysis that goes into buying a car, but, but you can understand how this relates to, you know, buying a $3 billion company. And, and you can imagine the hundreds of questions yeah. that, that are, are related to that. And there are easily 10, 15 attorneys who, We'll go through, you know, different levels of diligence, uh, em employment, um, IP, and of course, the the quote-unquote M&A lawyers are sort of the central group. And what we look at are like the primary contracts, so like the purchase and sale agreements, the service agreements. Um, but we need help from everybody else, like the specialists, to go through those specific contracts and create questions. And so there's a heavy back-and-forth diligence process. Um, that, I, I mean, this can take weeks. Um, and so through diligence, you know, I, I am sort of, I, I, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to give myself this, this credit. I'm, I'm sort of the backbone because it's my job to find, you know, what, what we call red flags. So these are issues that we need to bring to the client. And these are things that the client needs to be aware of so that they can properly decide if they want to go through with this deal. So we might say, Hey, um, there is a right of first refusal in this specific contract. So if you enter into this agreement and you want to do this specific thing, well, you can't just sell it to whoever you want. You have to turn to to the people you're already a party to in this contract. And so are, are you willing to do that? Um, and so based on these factors that we tell them, they can either decide to go through, uh, go through, go through with the deal or they can make adjustments to the price. Um, so, I mean, those are two separate deals that I've worked on, but that already shows you just yeah. the variation in my day-to-day -day that, that can happen hmm. based on the yeah. deals. <laughs> that was a lot of talking. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had no, it was good, I think. more follow-up questions, but a lot of that's well over my head. <laughs> please, please no. <laughs> tell, me, tell me more about what questions I should ask when I buy my car. <laughs> I mean, so it's, there are a lot of questions, you know, we, we can have a sidebar if you'd like, <laughs> but okay. don't, don't, 
I will say, don't just buy the first car that they show you. Hey, this is this is a great car. It's it's the lemon. They always show you the lemon first. There you go. This is practical <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, kind of in contrast, my job is again, like I said, a bit more stagnant. Um, I, I the clerk. I have five judges that I work for, and just to give you an idea of kind of um, how insane it can be sometimes, we. So I have five judges and in the morning they all hear master calendars, which are just, you know, initial pleadings and um, resetting the case for the individual hearing, which is the hearing on the merits um, and what people would think of as the quote unquote trial part. Although there's not, you know, there's no juries and we don't really have rules of evidence. So that kind of makes it easier. Uh, but they, so they'll hear anywhere from sometimes 10 and it can be all the way up to 30 master calendar hearings a day. Um, and then they will each have between one to two individual hearings in the afternoon. And it's a bit different. I work in a detained court, which is where, um, you know, for either safety to the community or flight risk, you know, just like you would for a bond, we keep people detained while their hearing is pending versus there are non-detained courts as well, where, you know, they've been granted bond essentially from, well, that's what we call it, you know, bail, we call it bond, um, from the court. And so we will prepare the judges for the hearings that they have. And obviously we're just there to answer any questions that they have. A lot of things that come up are uh, criminal charges in related to the categorical approach, which is where you, you know, the Supreme Court decided that basically there should be generic crimes. So even though Texas has a robbery statute, they kind of said, this is a generic crime of robbery and this is what it looks like. So you take whatever crime the person was convicted of, and then you compare it to what, you know, the quote unquote generic crime and decide whether or not it fits within that generic definition of the crime. Um, yeah, so that's okay. kind of what we do a, a lot of. And then we will prepare the judges for the individual hearings. A lot of times we'll kind of review the record of proceedings or what we call it, the files beforehand and say, you know, whether or not we think it might be a grant or denial or maybe certain points that they might want to question the respondent about more, um, who's the person who is removable from the United States and is seeking some form of relief, or sometimes they can test their removability as well. But, and then we don't usually sit in on the hearings unless the judge knows in advance that they're going to do a written decision. There's been a real push in the last few years for judges to do more oral decisions. So just from the bench versus um, formal written decisions. So we have. And, 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 no, sorry. And, and why is that? Um, efficiency. There is a huge backlog of uh, immigration cases. I think it's somewhere around like 300,000 maybe. Mm. Um so, you know, we have no dark courtroom policies. You have to be, you know, we don't want any courtrooms to not be hearing cases. So judges are in court from eight to noon and then one to okay, four. Yeah. yeah, just a lot of efficiency things to try to get through the massive yeah, backlog. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, that yeah, so we will oftentimes, after a judge has heard the case, they'll decide that they want to do a reserve decision and they'll give us the file and we'll listen to the hearing after they've already done it, um, which can be, especially now with COVID has been sometimes difficult because we have the Department of Homeland Security attorney on the phone and the translator a lot of times and, you know, respondents counsel. So it can be quite a long hearing with having to translate between all the people and then also 
just confusion over who's talking or what's being said, but we're working through it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. And so then we just write, you know, the decision. Sometimes the judges will give us more discretion. They'll say, I'm on the fence. Let me know what you think. Or sometimes they'll say, I want this to be a grant and I want this to be a denial. And you just have to, you know, like any opinion that you read from a court, you know, state the facts and say why you've come to the decision you've come to. So. Can you, I guess I'm curious how, what has the transition, if any, been like with COVID-19 and in, in the federal government? I feel like with firms, it's been pretty documented as far as like working from home pretty much since March. Um, I think for most large law firms and even the smaller ones, um, working from home, but maybe going to the office here and there as needed. Um, what has it been like um, it, from your perspective, Ellen? Yeah, so I think it is kind of it's it's been kind of office by office in a lot of ways. And also, like I said, there's detained courts and non-detained courts. And so the non-detained courts, because they're open to more people from the public, you know, you have not only the respondents, but the respondents' families coming in from outside and all the attorneys versus all of our respondents, you know, are already in the detention facility. So they're not coming into contact with outside people as much. Uh, you know, they get to meet yeah. their attorneys and see their families and stuff, but kind of a different scenario. So they, they've closed a lot of the non-detained courts um, from having people come into them from the outside. Um, and we have kind of just adjusted where we, you know, do a staff rotation. So only half the staff is in the office at a time. And then we also um, are doing all of our hearings by video teleconference or phone um, hearings so that, you know, people aren't having to be in the same courtroom with each other. So just trying to do the best we can, but obviously, you know, they are detained. We don't, we have to still have the proceedings and, you know, we don't want them to be detained for yeah. long periods of time without having any form of hearing. So trying to get through that. Okay. We don't have as much of ability to work from home. It's a, a lot harder because we have to have the hearings and yeah. the judges have to be in the courtrooms to have the hearings. So yeah. my job can sometimes be from home, but we also need to be on call if the judges have a problem. So we do a rotation where we work from home for two weeks because there's three people in my position essentially. I see. And then we go into the office um, on the third week, you know, so you're in the office one week and work from home two weeks. So that way you can take your pending cases that you mm. have and you write them when you're at home. And then when you're in the office, you're kind of on call for the judges to uh, you know, help them. So. Interesting. As far as me and what the tasks I've done throughout this first year, I think the, the common theme has been what many people have done through law school, and that's been research and writing. Um, the interesting thing has been kind of learning new ways to research. I feel like most people do Westlaw and Lexis through law school, which is definitely um, used in, in my practice, but I've also had to learn new tools to research arbitration and different topics related to arbitration. And one thing, one website is Kluwer's arbitration that has come up many times to review treatises. Cause a lot of times it's very like um, a little more high level, unresolved academic ish questions that come up in terms of like arbitrability of certain disputes and how to resolve certain questions on choice of law um but other than that other than the research and writing aspect on on specific questions it's been i haven't done as much 
doc reviewers, I think a lot of people do in their first year, but I have reviewed documents um, in the sense of like, um, when like a dispute, a potential dispute or a case is coming in, a lot of times the client will kind of give us a lot of materials to look at, like emails and things that they have. And so that's been kind of like a little bit of an exciting, but also like a challenging thing to kind of look at these documents and try and piece together what the story is, what the different characters are in this dispute that happened um, or is happening, um, and to kind of try and help come up with what our best case or argument or theme would be if it ever like progressed for further enough to be like a full-fledged arbitration. Um, and that's also sort of a challenge in looking okay. at documents because it's not a closed universe. It's an open universe. And sometimes, sometimes you need to ask for more documents and sometimes there aren't really more documents to get. I still haven't really seen what the full-on discovery would look like in, in the adversarial arbitration setting. A lot of it has been kind of looking at documents from um, our client and then asking documents, asking our client to ask the other party for documents in an effort to see really what their case is and try and avoid the dispute before it arises or before it ends up in a request for arbitration. Gotcha. But yeah, I would like to ask for all of us here, what kind of in debriefing this last year, what really were the highs and lows, um, if any, um, and what lessons you learned and what lessons you hope to learn in the, in the coming year of, of your career? Um, Ellen, we can start with you on this one. Sure. Um, so I think I'll, I'll get to the kind of more nuanced answer in a second. But I think one thing I just want to say is that if you are in a certain career and maybe it's not or you're in a certain field of practice or you are considering taking a job in a certain field of practice, and it's not necessarily what you want to do. Don't let that prevent you from taking that job. I mean, you should never take a job just because it's a job, although I guess, you know, you need money, but, you know, you, you want to do stuff that you're passionate about. But I think for me, you know, I entered into doing immigration law and now I'm being able to transition in my second year into something that I'm much more interested in that hopefully I'll be doing criminal law and eventually white collar crime. Very cool. And, you know, that's hopefully what will happen. So I think just, you know, it's, that's not necessarily related to immigration law, but having that experience, just being able to have some experience and especially that I was able to do the categorical approach and these other criminal analysis that maybe I didn't necessarily know I was going to get that will benefit me in my future career. Um, you know, those were really helpful. And so I think like looking back at the highs, I think that is a huge high that it gave me these connections and some of the basic skills just to be able to actually get something that's closer to what I want to do. Um, so that's kind of my like huh. soapbox moment. Um, <laughs> I think one of me, one of the lows for me is, I mean, like I said, I do have a very nice work-life balance, but I think sometimes also I would, I wish that I was busier or wish that I, you know, I, I sometimes, not that I don't feel like a real attorney, but I think a lot of people I know work in firms and are like, oh, I'm working these really long days and I'm just so busy and I have so much responsibility. And I, I do have a lot of responsibility because people's lives really are at risk in what I'm doing. Yeah. But, you know, I, I don't work really long days. And so I think sometimes I have, I, I don't know, it's not quite imposter syndrome, but I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm not like a real attorney. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, well, well. Let me say this, I mean, Ellen. Be careful. It's also something. <laughs> I'm not sure it goes away because even in the even in whatever setting, in the big law setting, I think everyone can speak to this experience at one point or another. Is when when you're super slow for like a week, and it happens to everyone. It 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 feels like exactly what you're describing. <laughs> um, it feels and, just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just one of those things that I don't know is. I guess we're wired to feel that to feel that way if we don't. <laughs> yeah, law school. <laughs> yeah, I definitely starts in law school. I'll say. Well, so that's exciting that you're you're you have this transition on the horizon, though. I'd be interested in hearing what what that's like when it happens. Um, I don't know, Femi. Do you have? I can talk a little bit about highs and lows on my end. I think. Some of the highs has been able to be in federal court a couple of times for some hearings. Um, and Ooh. we did like some Daubert hearings. And then we had a pretrial hearing in the middle of COVID, which um, the trial ended up not still kind of postponed now because of COVID. Um, but we had the pre- final pretrial hearing anyway. Um, and so it was interesting to be in court with everyone having their masks on and social distancing and things like that. It's definitely nothing anyone would have imagined happening like a year ago right um very surreal for the practice to be so affected um and i think patrick i know this isn't necessarily related to your exact job but didn't you have a pro bono case where you the lead counsel on <laughs> um yeah uh divorce um that may have been Ooh. i don't know if that it's a high and a low mixed together i think um I think that was my first trial, um, and that was just a couple weeks ago now. Um, and we won on some points, but not all the points. I think the result could have been a lot worse. Um, but it, yeah, it wasn't the result we wanted at the end of the day, which I think was hard um, for me and also for the client. The child at the end of the day has two loving parents, which is the most important thing. Um, but it was definitely an experience to kind of be the lead counsel on that case that I sort of inherited from a colleague um, and seeing it through, I guess, eight to nine months of sort of trying to negotiate, negotiating successfully and wow. then not negotiating successfully and then ending up in a, in a final trial. Yeah. Looking forward to in the second year, I guess, just learning more and hopefully seeing more arbitration. Um, and I think all of us maybe feel this way a little bit in like half of this first year, if not more than half of this first year has been kind of characterized by COVID-19 and will be for the next few months as well. Yeah. So for me, uh, I'd say one of the highs that I've had is um, just sort of picking up cues as to when I can sort of shine and in, in taking responsibility in a deal. Uh, like, like I said, you know, the, the transactional space is very new and nebulous when you first get on. And one of the, one of the best uh, bits of advice that I picked up from, from a partner at my firm is he said, basically every deal tells a story. And so your first year, you're taking time to learn what the story is. You're picking up the narrative. And so once you get a good handle as to what the narrative is, you know, if you're, if your character needs to you know, say these words or do these tasks in, in the script. Um, and so you, you can, you know, to, Hey, to prolong the metaphor here, your first day on set, you have no clue what your lines are. You don't know what your task is. And at this point now, like 
when when I guess uh, another character says something, I now know what my lines are. And so that's been a huge high of just understanding my role that I'm playing in this narrative. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's been great. And now I'm gonna break that metaphor. <laughs> um, I guess some some of the lows I would say is is um, you know I've I felt like I've been burnt mm. a little bit by some some you know like some of the mistakes that I've made have like really shifted my confidence. You know, I'll be honest. Um, especially being, you know, a first generation attorney who, you know, my family has poured a lot into me and they, they, you know, want me to do well. I've, I've sort of beaten myself up a little bit more just thinking, oh man, like, I feel like I let people down, felt my, I, I let myself down, um, you know, whenever I've made certain mistakes. And, and so I, you know, thankfully, obviously I'm still here. So I've, I've overcome them, but um, that's, that's something that I think every attorney goes through is, you're going to mess up and, you, and you're going to make a mistake that you consider to be a groundbreaking mistake. Hmm. But the truth is it's probably been done and it's probably been done yeah. worse. Um, so, so, so the goal is to, you know, own up to the mistake, try to remedy it as, as much as possible, own up to it, be as transparent as possible about yeah. it and keep it moving. Yeah. That's great. I mean, so true. I think, you know, we've all had times I can think specifically, I actually just, um, was helping a judge on a case and we got remanded by the board of immigration appeals. And I mean, basically it was, you know, entirely my fault because I, they said I hadn't, you know, when I, and when I was drafting the opinion that I didn't do enough analysis or something. So, you know, it definitely can be very mm. frustrating and then you beat yourself up, but it's kind of trying to learn from those mistakes and just do better the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So exactly. on that note, um, any, and I think a lot of it has trickled in through this conversation, but any advice you would give to people who are entering their first year right now in this especially unique time? And I, I, I mean, I guess my advice would be something similar to what an associate in my group told me. Whatever made you successful in the past, um, in law school or otherwise, just like hold on to those things in practice and whatever like habits you have to like take care of yourself and um maintain your mental health to hold on to those as well uh but also in in that vein don't try to worry too much about the end game whether that's like your your billable year or like the other things just do your best obviously but if you're not in this setting of billable hours where it's like if you don't get the billable hours that you need by the end of the year then sure, that's not the ideal result, but maybe you had a better balanced life that year and were able to take advantage of not having those hours built and were able to develop yourself in other ways, personally or professionally otherwise. Um, and to just try and find the silver linings on those different sides to the extent to where you're not worrying too much to where it's destructive. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree with that. And and I will just say, you know, this might sound like blasphemy, but I I think as an attorney, the goal shouldn't be to hit a certain number of hours. The, the goal should be to provide, you know, diligent and adequate representation, even zealous representation for your clients. The, the billable hour, that's that's just a point about the industry, you know, like you will always take those skills wherever you go. You may or may not have that billable hour requirement. 
um, but you you will yeah. always be that good attorney, and so that's what you should you should strive for. Yeah. <laughs> oh wait, I, I guess I could go right. <laughs> for for some reason, I was like, yeah, go ahead, Patrick. Um, so. Th th this is what I'll say, and you know, I, I am sort of the herald of, of the transactional um, aspect here. So um, if you're entering your first year as a transactional attorney, mm -hmm. you need to get acquainted with the checklist. So, so you know, for, for deals, for certain deals, not every deal, um, there's, you know, a checklist that has a list of the, the documents, the contracts, and, and the conditions to certain obligations for each party. Um, this is such a fundamental document that I feel is, is sort of bandied about. Like it's sometimes it feels like it's around and it's just a list, but it's very, very important. So normally you're actually in charge of the checklist as a first year attorney, you'll probably create it or take the first pass at creating it and you'll be expected to update it on a certain schedule. So at the beginning of the deal, Maybe you'll update it once a week. Once you're getting closer to close, you'll be updating it daily or hourly. Um, but this this document is so fundamental. And if you're able to understand that, you know, the, the checklist might have a column for signatories. So that that will help you when you're creating um, signature page packets. It might help you when you're trying to understand, you know, who sent the last revision of what document or or how many. Uh, documents are supposed to be created for what party. I mean, you can really add value to your deal team by understanding the 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 nitty gritty of what's going on, and and the checklist will allow you to to you know provide said value. So just get really acquainted with that one document. I promise you, it'll help you out. Um, and another aspect that I'd say is sometimes it feels like you're just like you know you're gonna feel lost. I currently feel lost on on certain deals, but sometimes you don't even know what to ask. And so I would say, if you're given a task and the person says, you know, feel free to ask me any questions. A lot of times there's a disconnect. They may or may not remember how it felt to be a first year. And so you should ask them, well, what, what are the sort of questions I should be asking? What do you think I should be looking out for? Um, and that'll show that you are willing to pick up these, you know, these unsaid um, or, or these untold rules that you just have have no idea that, that you should be asking about. Um, and that'll also show that, you know, you, you want to be a team player. Yeah, on, on that note, I think just as important as it is to find someone who who's a mentor inside and outside of your place of work, I think it's also, if you find someone who's a good teacher, um, is also very helpful. And I've been fortunate in that in my group, I have a lot of really good teachers um, who are able to orient not just on the law, but yeah. on matter management issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I would just, I would just echo the advice that Patrick and Femi gave. I think one, especially during COVID, I mean, you need to take time to take care of yourself. It is a really hard time, not just in the legal field, but just in general right now. And, you know, finding things that you enjoy doing that give you a mental health break and, you know, that separate, especially I think right now, like I've really struggled with work-life balance because I live in a one-bedroom apartment. And so my computer is right there. I don't really have that separation of, oh, this is where I work and this is where I'm at home. So yeah. having to find my own space um, has been really important. Mm. And then I think, you know, something that's specific to me, I moved cities. I went to law school in Cleveland, Ohio, as I said, and 
moved to Houston afterwards. And I, I mean, obviously this is on the Hila, this is the Hila podcast, but really being involved <laughs> in the local bar associations. You know, I did the Hila Leadership Academy, which is how I met Patrick. And I met so many other attorneys who it's, you know, now I have a community and I also have other attorneys to turn to. And, you know, God forbid if I ever, you know, lost my job and like needed people to turn to, to like offer me references. You know, I, I now have found those people through the different bar associations, you know, the HBA, Hila, the Federal Bar Association. So that would be my advice. Like, especially if you're moving to a new city, the best way to get involved. I know it's hard right now because it's on Zoom, but you know, you it, it really is the best way to find yeah. other attorneys. Yeah. that That's such a yeah, great plug. Right now. Everybody get involved and <laughs> sign up for Hila today. Um, yeah, we let's sort of talk more about that's your awesome. your your newness to Houston, Ellen. I think that's an, uh, an interesting point since you you moved here to practice, and you'd only spent a couple couple summers before, or one summer before working here. I think you said. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, definitely. I mean, it was. I am from Texas originally, so that wasn't a huge transition. But I think you know, not having you know, obviously in law school, you build a lot of that community and, yeah. you know, your network. And so just kind of starting to build that from the ground up, but the leadership Academy certainly helped a lot. So yeah. yeah. And everywhere you turn are UT and UH grads. I know. <laughs> They're all over the place. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that about wraps up the yeah. questions that, that we had. Ellen, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. I super enjoy talking to y'all. Thank you so much for having me. And if you ever want me back on again to talk about of course. something else in the future, let me know. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the High Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. To reach us, please email us at highlightspodcast at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you if you have any comments or questions about this episode or thoughts on a future one. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.